This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 531. And the quote of the day is, don't be afraid to try something new because life gets boring when you stay within the limits of what you already know. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond and beyond and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here, episode 531. Thanks so much for being here. And since you're here, let me save you some money. The Sweetwater Countdown to Black Friday sale has officially begun, where you can save up to 74% off of amazing products. There's 12 pages of products to choose from. Everything from Zildjian symbols to protection racket cases to DW9000 seats and all kinds. I mean, 12 pages. Anything that you need. It's probably on that list. Go check it out. Go to sweetwater.com forward slash deal zone and also check out the show notes to this episode and I'll link you directly to the percussion stuff that you want to check out. But it's 74% off of a bunch of different stuff. Sweetwater.com forward slash deal zone. You've automatically saved some money. <laughs> All right. And this is a this is a little bit different of an episode. This is a special episode. So most of you or many of you may know that I started another podcast called Uncut with Nick Ruffini. And I talk to creators and entrepreneurs and talk about the idea of getting from zero to one and how you come up with an idea and then how you put that idea into action and you can execute on that idea. So I'm dropping this in the drummer's resource feed because I want to hit you to the podcast and, and let you take a listen to see what those episodes are like. But also... I thought this was the perfect one to do it. The guest is Lou Montulli. Lou Montulli is a drummer. He's an early internet pioneer and has founded a bunch of different companies and everything like that, but he's a drummer. And he and I actually met through Mike Johnston. And so we talk about how Lou created the Groove Scribe and the the ideas that we talk about though, although we're sort of skewing it a little towards business, are totally applicable in drumming. So we talk about how do you get an idea? How do you focus on something? How do you build something? And so- one, we talk, you know, we weave in drumming through the conversation anyway. Uh, two, I think that it'll really serve you in not only in drumming, but also in your life. And three, I figured it would be a perfect person to to showcase the uncut podcast, uh, who is also a drummer. So this is the full episode in its entirety. And if you want to subscribe, you can just go to nickrafini.com forward slash listen. And I hope you enjoy it. I'd love to hear your feedback. Here we go. Uncut with Nick Ruffini. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Uncut. I'm your host, Nick Ruffini. Thanks so much for being here. And if you would like to get an update of everything that's going on with this show and articles that I'm writing and other things that I think are cool... You should check out the mailing list. Go to nickrafini.com forward slash mix, nickrafini.com forward slash M-I-X. And it's just a light email I send out every Monday, like I said, with all of the latest podcast releases, article releases, and anything that I come across that I think that you'll really enjoy, books that I'm reading, and all of that kind of stuff. So check it out. Go to nickrafini.com forward slash mix and stay up to date. Now let's get into it with my guest, Lou Montulli. So I met Lou through a mutual friend, and he is hands down one of the most fascinating people I've ever met. Let me give you a little background. In 1994, he became the founding engineer of Netscape Communications and programmed the networking code for the first versions of Netscape Web Browser. 
He's also the creator of Website Cookies, Client Push and Pool, aka Push Notifications, Animated GIFs, and a ton of other technologies, including the Blink Element and HTT Proxying. Now, you don't necessarily have to know what all of that means, but rest assured, you benefit from those inventions every single time you use the internet. Lou has been widely recognized for his work as one of the only six inductees to the World Wide Web Hall of Fame announced at their first international conference on the World Wide Web in 1994. In 2002, he was named to the MIT Technology Review TR100 as one of the top 100 innovators in the world under the age of 35. Not only is he a brilliant engineer, he's also been a successful entrepreneur since 1994 as a founding engineer of ePinions.com, which was sold to Shopping.com in 2004 as co-founder and CEO of Memory Matrix, which was sold to Shutterfly in 2008 as the founder and CEO of the cloud storage company Zeta.com and his latest company, Jet Insight, which he started in 2015. Lou's ability to dream up ideas and execute that vision is second to none, and we unpack those skills and more in this special episode. So let's not wait any longer and get into it with the one and only Lou Montoli. Lou Montoli, how are you? I'm fantastic. How are you, Nick? Good. Good, good, good. I'm so I'm this has been a long time coming. I feel like I say that a lot with a lot of conversations that I have, but this you and I have talked about this for for a while now, so I'm finally uh so I'm glad we're finally lining it up and been able to do this. Yeah, my fault. Uh we talked I think at NAM uh, almost a year ago and mm-hmm. I keep I kept putting it off and putting it off and misscheduling it. So apologies, but I'm I'm really glad we're here. Well, we don't we don't place blame. We don't place blame here, so it's you know, it these things happen. Um, man, there's, there's so many, there's so many questions that I've, that I've always wanted to ask you. So I'm glad to, to have you here. You are, and, and I don't, and I don't say this jokingly, you are truly one of the most fascinating people I've ever met in terms of the things that you've done throughout your entire career. And not only that, but, but the things that you've done that affect the way that, that we live our lives every day, that people may not may not know that that you were behind. So, I mean, you were you were an early architect of the internet, right? With Netscape, uh, you invented cookies, and we're going to talk about that because I, I I know that. And when I say cookies, I don't mean chocolate chip cookies, but uh, <laughs> but cookies on the internet. That when you go to a website and it says this site uses cookies, uh, you're the guy who invented those. But I know that they were made for something else. So I I want to talk about that a little bit. Uh, you created the animated GIF, which I my life would be incomplete without. I would not. Uh, I, I wouldn't know how to communicate without them. Uh, but you've also created companies that you've, that you've grown and sold and you're starting or you're running another company now. And all of these, all of these things have, have one thing that have weaved through all of them, which is technology, which is something that you're, that you're extremely passionate about. Where did that passion start for you? Did you, did you always know that, that you were going to be in some sort of, in some sort of technology space when you were growing up or coming into college? I definitely did not know what I was going to be doing when I was growing up. Uh, I am very much uh, more in the vein of an accidental entrepreneur. I found myself creating products because I was really excited to, to use these products and they turned out to be useful to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we, if we go, if we go way back, uh, in my early childhood, uh, was 
There was there was definitely some uh, developmental problems, uh, and I found uh, I found some solace in playing around with computers, mm-hmm. like a lot of a lot of other nerds have a similar story. Uh, I wasn't I wasn't particularly well ad- adapting in early middle school years, and uh, my father had bought an, a really early PC, one of the ones you might see in a in a museum these days. And one of the characteristics about PCs back then is they really didn't have a lot of software and they didn't have a lot of, uh, they had virtually no games and they didn't have an easy to use interface. So if you had a computer back in the, in the early eighties, you pretty much had to learn to do everything yourself. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it wasn't programming per se, but you were, we're working with computers in a very raw sense. Right. Was that DOS or was that before that? Yeah, it was the very first uh, early versions of Microsoft DOS. Uh, Got you. And everything was command line. And you had to interface with hardware fairly frequently, floppy disks and tapes and things like that. Uh, so it's a little bit different than now where most kids, every child almost now has uh, some sort of computer experience, but generally they're playing video games and they're pointing and clicking. So they may not really understand very much about computers, even though they may be on computers for four or five hours a day. Mm-hmm. And is it is? Uh, I know this is an oversimplification, but the way that we use computers now is basically a skin over top of what's actually happening behind. Where before, uh, like the early days of like MS DOS and all that, you're actually under the hood, right? And and you're seeing what's going on. Uh, would that be? I mean, I understand that's a very uh, that's a gross oversimplification, but is that sort of along the lines of what we're talking about? Yeah, it's a great analogy. Uh, a modern computer is like an onion. It's a series of programs that are built on top of other programs. And if we dig deep enough, all of the really early stuff is still under there. Like if, mm-hmm. if, we, if we dig down, we'll find code that was written back in the 80s that's still running certain subsections of our computer and we've just simply put another layer of programming on top of it to make it more user-friendly or to the user interface on top of it. So uh, there is some relevance to the, to the old times. Uh, but it, it, that's not super important here. I was merely making the point that I accidentally started to learn about computers um, in, a, in, a, in a more fundamental way than kids do today generally. And... Later on in my life, when I was looking for some way to get paid, that turned out to be a useful skill. Right. <laughs> and so I stumbled into it in a way, as, as many people do. is oftentimes this claim that we have um, these built-in abilities, but usually it's the case that we just, we learned it when we were younger or we had an uh, enjoyment to it. So we we did it a lot more often than uh, than our peers, and therefore we appear much better at something than 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 others. Mm-hmm. The point that that I'm hearing too is that it's a skill set. It's not something that you were just innately born with. And and sure, I think that people lean one way or another, or or can have an affinity towards something. But sitting down and spending thousands of hours working on this and developing it it's you and i are both drummers so you want like we can talk about it from that aspect too like none of us just sit down and can be able to to just you know play blazing chops around the kit uh i mean some people can tony royster jr but um (laughs) but you know even if you look at tony royster jr he you know by the time 
everyone knew who he was. He was already playing for 16 years, you know? Um, but you've seen, but you've been able to, to master both sides of it, which is the, the technical side of things. Let's say that almost the artistic side of that, but then the entrepreneur side of it as well, the entrepreneurial side of it, which would you compare, would you look at them the same way that they're both just skill sets that you have to learn? Yeah. Yeah, I would. Uh, I am definitely in the camp that, uh, everything is learned. Virtually everything is learned. Mm -hmm. Certainly, uh, there's some, there's some genetic component to, uh, maybe at the very extreme levels of being the very best at something and at the, at the learning side, being slightly faster at learning something. But I think most people generally, uh, average out. If you Mm -hmm. put enough time into something, I am, absolutely convinced that almost everybody can be very good at the skill they want to be good at if only they're able to put in enough time to really master all of the skills necessary to do that that particular task mm-hmm. uh, and i i feel i'm just the result of many of those things so uh, to be an entrepreneur in the modern world it means many things but generally it, it means you have to be able to do some subset of things that people want Mm-hmm. Uh, they want your they want your product or services, and you have to figure out: are are you going to are you a builder of of those products and services? Are you a marketer of those products or service and services? Uh, you can be out of any one of these things. You could be great great at sales. You could be great at marketing. You could be great at creation, and you can be an entrepreneur. Uh, you don't have to do it all yourself. Mm-hmm. I think if you ask any entrepreneur, they'll tell you that they surround themselves with a bunch of people that help them do the things that they're bad at. Uh, and I'm bad at a whole lot of things. <laughs> what are, what are some things thing- that you're, that you're bad at? I'm always interested to hear cause we always talk about what people are great at, but what are some of the things that, that you feel like you come up short with? Yeah, I think that's a great question because it's really important for us to self-identify on those things. Mm-hmm. Um, when we're creating a business or really doing anything in life that where the where we really want the outcome to be right if we can identify the areas where we're especially bad we can we can know to pay special attention to double check them or mm-hmm. to kind of force your way through them or we can try to find other people who are good at those things and who really enjoy doing those things to work with us to satisfy those tasks that we're just not good at doing or we hate doing that's to me, usually they, they, they coincide. The things that I hate doing are all the things I'm bad at. And right. I'm, and I'm not, I'm, I am bad at them because I hate doing them. They're, mm-hmm. they're, I don't believe that I, that I would be terrible at these things if I really enjoyed doing them. I just, I know I don't like them and therefore I put them off. I procrastinate. I don't do enough time on them and therefore I'm, I'm bad at them. Right. So if I, if I want to list off <laughs> all the things I'm really bad at, um, <laughs> I'm, this this I'm, will this will get into it'll be uplifting <laughs> after this I promise. <laughs> um, this is a horrible I, interview. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm actually really bad. I guess top level, I'm really bad at being um, you know following through on a whole list of tasks. Uh, it, if if I have to do the same thing over and over again, or kind of top down deal with a hundred different tasks. I know I'm not good at that because I, I have, I have uh, drummers talk about this a lot. Uh, it seems to be a common ailment is uh, having ADD, especially when we're on the kit. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I will start working on something and there are, there are a few things that I can work on literally forever and stay focused. Uh, but most things I can only do for a very short period of time. And then I get, I get distracted. I get bored and following through on all the different things I have to do, if, unless I write them down and methodically check them off is, is just really difficult for me. So therefore I have learned through years of experience and failure that I make a terrible CEO. Uh, really? A CEO has to do a uh, hundred different things at once, mm -hmm. keep them all kind of relatively uh, balanced in priority, uh, address the really high priority uh, fires very quickly, and deal with a bunch of things that I would rather not deal with, like uh, personnel issues and other, other really sticky, thorny things that are just not necessarily fun to deal with. Mm -hmm. uh, things I am good at, on the other hand, is dealing with, with uh, product creation and, and uh, interesting technologies and, and figuring out puzzles uh, in, the, in the computer world that drive other people crazy. So I try to stick to those things and avoid, avoid the things I'm bad at. I'm right. also terrible at sales. Uh, I don't particularly like to write, so I'm bad at marketing. Uh, uh, we could go down the, the full list of all the <laughs> positions in a, in a corporate department, and then I would probably be bad at most of them. Uh, but I am very good at, at helping to create a product. Mm -hmm. uh, and in, in this case, in, in almost all the cases of my business, it's been a software product. And it's the one thing I truly love to do is to create products and have customers use those products and hopefully tell me great things about them. Mm -hmm. They often tell me a combination of great things about them and all the other things that they want fixed. And I use that as motivation to go you know, improve the product and, and make it better. Right. How I, I was going to ask if you feel like you have some sort of ADD or ADHD or something like that, how you manage to sit and write thousands and thousands and thousands of lines of code? Yeah, I think, I think that's a great question. I've thought about that quite a bit. Uh, I think ADD is a selective disorder. Mm -hmm. I think that combined with the personality type of those who do have a ADD, there are certain things that fascinate them to, to really no end. And uh, so, you know, one of those one of those is playing video games. <laughs> I think this mm -hmm. is something we can all identify. Almost everyone we know who 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 is easily distracted can sit and play video games for a long time, right? So right. that seems kind of obvious. It's entertaining and it's easy to play. But why is that, right? Why doesn't our why aren't we distracted there? And one of the keys there is is um, a video game is is providing a constant. Uh, new source of information and challenges. Mm -hmm. It's not the same thing over and over again. It's not like adding up a series of 100 numbers over and over again, like you might do in an accounting, uh, if you were an accountant. And I think most of us who have AD and ADD would not like to be an accountant unless we are somehow very fascinated with <laughs> long division. <laughs> um, so computer programming to me is a bit like a video game in which I have a task that I want to accomplish, and it's broken down into a series of puzzles. We can think of it as puzzles, but you can think of it a lot of different ways. But really, it's a, it's a way of, I have, to, I have to get this grand task done. I'm going to break it down into a thousand smaller tasks, but I'm not going to really think of it as a, as a, as a big list. I'm going to think of it as I've got to build all these parts 
and and the the parts expand in the mind as I'm creating them. So it's, it becomes this very intricate puzzle. Mm-hmm. And the more I get into the puzzle, the more fascinating it becomes. And I can literally just do this for 10 hours at a time sometimes. And as long as the, until I'm complete with the puzzle, it, it just won't stop. And I've had these experiences where I'll say hi, somebody will walk into the room and I'll say hi. And then they'll, they'll, walk by and say goodbye. And I'm like, oh, didn't you just get here? And they go, no, no, I was been here for an hour and a half. I'm like, what? I just literally lifted my head and said hi to you. And they go, no, no, that was an hour and a half. I'm like, how really? is that even possible? I spent an hour and a half in my own my own headspace working on this problem. And it, it so the clock just disappeared for me. I had zero recollection that any time had passed because I was just so consumed with this, with this problem. And uh, so as I... As I've, I've thought about this quite a bit, and uh, there's there's a there's a term for it. It's called flow state. There's a mm-hmm. meditative state. There's a lot of people can get there in different ways through meditation and other ways. But it's just really to be incredibly present, focused on a singular problem, and the mind will just concentrate on that perfectly if if you allow it to do so, and if you have the the fascination for it. And I. I think most people can do this and have experienced this in some way or another. They're just not necessarily doing it in a way that they find profitable. Right. <laughs> and I don't mean I don't mean profitable for making money. I mean profitable in terms of having a result that they wanted at the end. You could do that in any number of, of ways that if you're wanting to develop, to develop a skill and you can work on that with 100% attention and you do that with so much attention that time just flies by, you mm-hmm. completely lose track of it, then you're going to get really good at that thing. Uh, and I hear drummers talk about that. Like they talk about how they would spend five, six, seven, eight hours on the kit when they were younger because they just couldn't stop doing it. They were fascinated by the process. I hear um, people in all walks of life where they're learning a, a skill or a sport uh, and they got so wrapped up in it that it just became the only thing they could see. And that was where all their time went. Mm-hmm. And they never thought of it as work. They didn't see it as practice. They just thought it, about it as that's what they did for fun. Right. It was so fascinating. And, and a lot of times that is what's necessary to, to reach that level of achievement, whether it be behind the drums, as, as we've mentioned numerous times, or like, I remember reading that when you were coincidentally, when I was starting a, a different business with my brother, I said the same exact thing, but, uh, that you were saying when you were, when you guys were first starting Netscape that you were working 120 hours a week. And I'm, I, I've worked 120 hours a week, so I understand what it, <laughs> what it's like. And it, it's brutal, but at the same time to you, did it feel like 120 hours a week to you? Yeah, that was a really unique time and no, it didn't feel like 120 hours a week. So there, there was a very specific set of circumstances that allowed me to work that many hours because I wouldn't recommend that to anybody working in a creative space where the outcome actually matters. Uh, usually when you're designing a product or working on something uh, that's new or creative, you really need to have the, a fresh state of mind. You need good sleep. You need to make sure that you're fully healthy. And, and honestly, working that many hours is, is not a, a long-term healthy uh, lifestyle. Uh, the, the set of circumstances that led to that, uh, that time period was 
I, I had been working on the early web for, uh, I think, almost three years. Uh, I worked on a product called Lynx at, well, at the University of Kansas, and that was one of the earliest web browsers, and it's still around today on Linux systems. And uh, when we started Netscape, we brought together the, the teams of people that had built uh, all the early web browsers at the time, or a, a, good, a good portion of them. So this was people from the University of Illinois, uh, and people from CERN and, uh, and people from the University of Kansas, and then some Silicon Valley veterans who really knew the Silicon Valley well, the fundraising side well, the business side, the marketing side. Uh, and the idea was to create uh, a commercial quality web browser that could, be, that, could, that could really be the launching point for the general public to, to get into this great product. We had been working on it for a number of years. We believed very strongly that the web was a fantastic platform. And it just, it was kind of mired in, in, uh, in the open source world, which isn't a bad place to be. It's just, we didn't have enough resources to really make it the level of quality that it needed to be for the general pub public to use it. So we created this company, uh, raised some money, uh, and, and started working on a complete ground-up rewrite uh, to create the very first commercial version of the World Wide Web. And so the unique circumstances there was I had already built a browser and I'd, been, I'd spent three years uh, doing that. And so I knew all the parts to do it. Mm -hmm. I just need, basically needed to redo it. And when you redo something, you don't have the same level of, of mental hurdles that you would if you were building something new. And when we're inventing something, we have to spend a, a tremendous amount of creative time brainstorming and thinking, okay, what are the trade-offs between mm -hmm. uh, these different directions? But when you're re-implementing something, you really know all of the, uh, all of the uh, directions you need to go. And having already done it once, it's like, oh, I'm just going to do it again. I'm just going <laughs> to do it much better. Right. <laughs> I'm going to... Try not to make all the mistakes I made before that I needed to redo mm -hmm. uh, and and just do it the, the right way from the beginning. And so I had all of this knowledge and I just needed to transfer that knowledge that was in my head into the computer. Uh, and so I, I spent a period of about three and a half months where I was I would just sit in front of that computer for as long as I could, dumping all that information from my head into the computer and... It, yeah, it took about three and a half, four months to do that. And then I was, we were kind of caught up to where, where we'd been from the Lynx days. So when you were working, I guess when you were in college with Lynx and then also with Netscape, there's, you're building something that has, never been, that has never been built before. You're in an industry that's in its infancy. And coincidentally, like I, I'm feeling some of the same the same things with revoice because it podcasting although podcasting isn't that new i would say the industry of podcasting is is fairly new so i always i'd say this to my wife all the time that you know if i was going to be a real estate agent or if i was going to be a doctor or something like that there's a roadmap that i can follow because there's thousands of people millions of people who've done it before me i can see what they did model what they did and probably have success if i'm if i work hard enough and work long enough but when it's something new, how do you suggest that people start down, or people meaning me, uh, you know, how do you suggest that people go down this road that, that no one's ever been down before? And how do you start to figure that out? And how do you know if you're, if you're making the right decisions or not? 
Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. And I, I think it's much easier than people give it credit for. I, people see a new idea and, and they think, oh, wow, that's amazing. Somebody must have just thought that up. It's totally new. And the reality is almost always, there's some rare exceptions. Uh, Einstein's theory of relativity comes to mind as one of them. <laughs> but that's a rare exception. Almost always, the inventions that are, that are really exciting are really just a advancement or a combination of something that already exists, mm-hmm. existed prior. So the, the links, for instance, which was networked hypertext, we already had networked program, we, programs and we already had hypertext. All I did was say, hey, there's, there's this network thing and there's this hypertext thing. If I combine these two programs, we could have networked hypertext. And it turns out on the other side of the ocean, Tim Berners-Lee was having the exact same idea. Like, we, we should have hypertext and network it. And so he was doing his thing. I was doing my thing. We eventually uh, came together and started working on the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the iPhone is a, another good example. Uh, it, it looks like a revolutionary product, and it, it was. It's a fantastic product. Uh, but it's if you look at all of the things that came before it, it just combined three or four existing devices into one device and did a really good job of integrating them. Uh, almost everything we do today is going to be a hybrid of something that's already been done. So if, if somebody comes to me and says, I'm working on something new, like, like your, your podcasting company, I would encourage you to just look at what other industries have been doing and how could that be adapted to what my industry is doing and what's, what's unique about, what's unique about podcasting, how it's delivered, you know, find out what you think is different about your business than existing businesses, and then look through all the ways that they're doing marketing, they're doing product development, look at how they do all their various task and say, okay, can any of those apply to me if I just modify them slightly? Mm -hmm. And then it's also important to look a little bit further afield than just industries or products that are very close to your particular product. Uh, So this is why I think it's it's important to to be uh, well-rounded and to, you know, have have lots of conversations with people who are outside your particular industry Mm -hmm. because you can often find oftentimes find insights from other industries who are doing something that applies to their industry that would fit perfectly to yours. If only you'd known about it. Like, uh, there's, uh, a, 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 uh, interesting analogy in the, in the, in the world of science is, uh, is, economics trudged along for a very, very long period of time, making assumptions about, uh, about, uh, uh, about markets and never including anything about you know, humans and psychology. And then a bunch of psychologists came along and said, well, what about, what about all this actual human psychological research and sociological research we're doing? If we actually combine these two things, we might, we might find a much more accurate model. Right. And, and so they did. And now we have much more interesting models for uh, markets. And, and we, use, we use these insights when we create uh, marketing materials and products to, to you know, 
more accurately model uh, behavior and, and get people to do what we want them to do, right. like buy our products. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think that, do you think that it's harder to go down the road that hasn't been, that hasn't been gone down before, or do you think it's easier to follow in, in the footsteps of people who have already done it? I think it's easier to be in a green space. Yeah. Uh, at a green space meeting, nobody's been there before. Uh, the, the advantage of a green space is that you can really run very quickly if you hit the right set of uh, features uh, that your users really want. Mm -hmm. So generally, <clears throat> so the web was a good example. Uh, the people didn't have any form of internet in their home. And when we gave them the, the touch, the, the taste of the very early internet, um, they, people got really excited about it and it was able to grow uh, exponentially in just a, a short number of years. And if, if we were selling razor blades or, or cars or any, anything in an existing product space, you'd it, be, it'd be very hard pressed to crack a few percentage of market share in, in just a few years. Right. And you wouldn't have that exponential growth. So it's much easier on the one hand to, to grow it's And on the other side of it, uh, it's hard to find a product that people really want mm -hmm. uh, or really need, I guess, is the, is the better, that's, that's the better analogy. If, it, it doesn't matter if you give them what they want, if they don't really need it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> It's a valid point. <laughs> when when you're taking when you're taking an idea or you have an idea, and you and I talked about this off air. Uh, I mean, we can start. We can go back to the to the company that you sold to Shutterfly, or we can talk about Jet Insight now. It Sunday night, you're sitting on your you know on your chair, and you're thinking, "Oh man, this I think this would really be a good idea." I'm passionate about this thing. Uh, whatever it may be, this company that I could start. And then, so what do you do Monday morning? How do you start putting the wheels in motion? I would imagine for you, you're thinking of the technical side first. Like, can I build a, you know, whether it be, can I build a better mousetrap or can I, can I build a new product for where I see a gap in the marketplace? Um, but walk me through those steps of how do you go from idea to sort of getting the ball rolling and actually turning it into a business that makes money and employs people and has even the possibility of being sold or, or run sustainably for an extended period of time. Yeah, this is the, this is a great question here. Cause it's the zero to one. Yep. How do I get there? Usually when people have a path, they're pretty good at following it, but to, to find a new path can be really tricky. Uh, I'm going to try to ignore all of the craziness of Silicon Valley and the specifics of how it might work here. Mm -hmm. uh, that might be an interesting discussion to have later on if we want to revisit it or at a, at a different time. Um, I'll just try to talk about how I go about figuring out if the, the aha idea I had before falling asleep is actually going to be a good idea or a bad idea. Or maybe it's a good idea that I just don't want to work on uh, because it's not worth it. Um, so let's say we have this idea. Uh, the, the first thing is I try to say, is this really a I wish idea? Is this something that other people are, are 
sitting around thinking, I wish I had this because mm-hmm. <laughs> those are the those are really good product ideas. Those I wish product ideas. Uh, if only I had this, I could do all these other things or my la- my time would be saved or very many other aspects that people want. So I have this idea. I first try to flesh it out a little bit and think through the what what a what a real product would look would look like. Uh, maybe it would be helpful to choose a concrete example, but a simple one. So I worked on this uh, on this drumming product, and this will be a, this is a free product, so we won't have to talk about sales and marketing on this <laughs> side. But I'll kind of walk you through. There's not going to be a landing page that they're going to have to go to. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, so. Uh, about, uh, oh God, I don't know how many years ago it was, uh, maybe five or six years ago, uh, I was uh, struggling with some of my practice time on the drums and I wanted to work on, uh, I specifically remember wanting to work on permutations of, of triplet, um, triplet-based uh, grooves mm-hmm. and subdivisions. And so I started to play around with different music software like uh, Sibilance, uh, whatever it's called. <laughs> uh, uh, Sibelius. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to Which, bash anyone's products, but that would be a great really name for a, That would be a great name for a, for a music program, Sibilance. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so these are great products for symphony uh, writers, but not so great for people who just want to write a little simple drum music. Uh, and so I struggle with these products. Uh, and I eventually, it was so frustrated, I stopped using it. And on the drive to work one day, I had this I wonder moment. And so this is pre-date. I wish I had software that would make, um, would make writing drum parts easier. And then I had an I wonder moment. It's like, I wonder if I could make a web browser do that for me. Uh, and I didn't really know whether that was possible. So the first thing I did is I spent like an hour just playing around with some different technological ideas that I had that said, is this possible? Could I do this thing in a web browser that would allow me to put notes on a page? Mm -hmm. And I found a bunch of existing software that kind of did little pieces of it. And then I played around with some technologies in in HTML and JavaScript. And I got the sense that, yeah, it was, it looked technically possible. Uh, And then I thought, okay, okay, let me just think through all of the aspects of this. And I kind of thought, I built this this product model in my head of all the things that it could do if all these technological ideas and pieces fit together. Like, what would I end up with if I spent a hundred hours working on this thing? And what what could I do if I spent maybe a thousand hours working on this thing? And I... I liked what I thought. I, I, I was, <laughs> you know, this is, you yeah. have to be a little bit inspired, right? So then I started talking to people about it. I was like, well, what, what, what if we could do this? Would, would that be useful to you? And I think this is a really key part of every zero to one idea is, and that people don't necessarily do enough of is get your idea together and make a prototype if you can, a simple one, uh, and then just show it to a bunch of people and really try to get a sense of what they could do with it mm-hmm. and and shut up and let them talk for a while, right? Show it to right. them. And then instead of trying to convince them with the hard sell, just let their, let their mind run free 
and see what ideas they come uh, back with. So uh, I remember, so I was just trying to create something to write sheet music and I showed it to uh, my friend, uh, Mike Johnston, and he said, well, does it play the music? <laughs> what? <laughs> I, I can't do that. That's, that's impossible. I mean, that'd be really hard. I mean, yeah. Mike, think about what you're asking. You're uh, like, Mike, you don't know what you're talking I, about anyway. Yeah, I don't know why I ever showed really this to hard. you. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was really pissed off. And then I was, and I was, <laughs> I remember having that conversation. I was like, oh, God, that sounds really hard. And then I started looking into it. It turns out, oh, maybe that is possible. Uh, and so then I actually, I built that thing and I kept talking to people and, and had uh, a bunch of conversations with Mike about it. And he kept giving me more and more um, ideas. And it this thing actually turned into this you know, fairly interesting uh, product for helping um, helping practice, helping drum teachers communicate with students. Uh, and I built that product, and uh, it's uh, it's called Groove Scribe. Mike's using it quite a bit, uh, and it's uh, it's open source software. Uh, but I went through all the same processes there that I would go through in if I was building a commercial company. Mm-hmm. In that, I had an idea. I Kind of tested whether that something like that could be built and whether it could be built you know, profitably. It wouldn't matter if it would if it would take me ten thousand hours. I wouldn't have built it because I just don't have that much time and I don't right. have the money to hire a big team. Um, and then I showed it to people. They gave me better ideas than I had, uh, and they started to run with it. When when people see something and they start having ideas around it, it's a pretty good sign that that's a good idea. And then it doesn't, it's okay if something like it exists. It just, the product that, that you're envisioning needs to be much better than the, pro- the products that currently exist. If right. it's just a little bit better, it's not going to work because mm-hmm. it's really, really hard to bring a product to market. It's really, really hard to uh, build it. It's hard to market it. And existing products have a massive advantage over anything new because they have the existing customer base that's already talking about the product. So you have to be much, much better. Than your competition uh, in in the valley, we generally say you have to be ten times better right. than than your competition in order to have a viable product. Uh, if it's an existing space, mm-hmm. if you're greenfield, like there is no product, that's when you don't need to be ten times better because right. there's nothing that you're you're a million times better because <laughs> nothing else exists. Uh, you just have to be useful, uh, and you have to you have to have some way of getting it out to users. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's kind of the next phase of if you have a product that's interesting and you can build it, then you really have to think, how will I get it out to people? And that really depends on what kind of product it is. Uh, if it's if it's a product that requires a sales team, for instance, mm-hmm. that's a much bigger hurdle than a product that could grow organically. An organic product is, say, uh, so you come up with a metronome app that really is 10 times better than all the other metronome apps. Um, all you really need to do with something like that is get it into the hands of some people who actually matter. Mm-hmm. Right? So influencers like yourself um, <laughs> and show them that it's really 10 times better. Like right. It really needs to be 10 times better if you want Nick to start talking about it on his on his podcast. And if you get 
you know, 10 NICs to talk about it for a while, uh, your app will start to take off. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have, you know, some sort of very expensive computer product that you sell to companies, you're going to have to have a sales team. And when you have a sales team, you have all these other problems that come into play. You have to, salespeople are expensive. They have to have marketing departments behind them. They have to have a large infrastructure and team. And once you have a salesperson selling your product, you have to sell that product for tens of thousands of dollars because the salesperson costs tens of thousands of dollars to sell it generally. Right. Unless you're talking about Amway or door to door knife sales or something. Right. <laughs> or M- yeah, um, M- MLM, some MLM marketing. Yeah, yeah. I try to avoid all that sort of stuff. Yeah, same. Me too. It's one thing to talk about how great dream symbols are, but it's another thing to actually hear them for yourselves. And the good thing about dream is not only do they sound great, but they're also priced well below the competitor's prices. So that way you can actually afford to buy these symbols. And if you don't think you can get a great sounding symbol at a low price, check out dreamsymbols.com. But first, I want you to take a listen to what these things sound like. To learn more about dream symbols, be sure to check them out at dreamsymbols.com. and I had a conversation, man, this was probably three or four years ago now. Um, but it was about, it was about creating the feedback loop inside of your company to sort of evaluate what's working, what's not. So for you, how do you create those feedback loops? And then how do you know if, okay, if this thing is not working, how, how do you know what to change or how do you know what to, what, what, uh, what changes need to be made to, to keep the business moving forward or the idea going forward? This is one of my favorite topics. Uh, I think feedback loops are the most important thing in a business. Mm-hmm. A, a, a well-run business has a whole bunch of really great feedback loops that are continuously running, that are reinforcing the skills and the knowledge to make that business better. And businesses that don't have that are likely deteriorating or, or being stagnant. Mm-hmm. And a stagnant business is likely to go out of business. So what's a feedback loop? So a feedback loop is some sort of process that allows uh, whatever you're trying to measure to be communicated back to whatever, whatever you're trying to improve Mm-hmm. <laughs> and for that improvement to then be delivered back to the audience and that for them to give you more feedback. Uh, so, you know, a simple one is you have a product, you put the new product in market and you ask people what they think about it and they tell you they like it or they don't, uh, which is very binary. So we want to get a, a lot more precise than that. Obviously, we want to find out what they like about it, what they don't like about it. Uh, and very specifically, you want to know what features, what, 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 what very specific aspects of, the, of that product they like and don't like so that you can continue to refine the product to be, uh, to be much better. Mm-hmm. And one of the beautiful things about software products is that that feedback loop can be very, very fast. Right. Uh, so a, a, a good startup can be re- re- releasing code literally every single day more likely once a week, but they could be doing it every single day. And they can 
use electronic means to communicate with their user base about what they like and don't like about everything they're doing that's new and everything that they've been doing that's old. And they can use that process to, to kind of drive uh, towards the ideal product as much as possible. Now, you won't always get there through this mechanism, but if you're at least, if you're going in the right direction initially, mm -hmm. this will continue to refine your direction uh, until you really start to, to very, very much nail the, 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 the ideal product right on the head. Um, so, um, for the, you know, just go back to my example on the groove scribe, what, and I don't think we have a great feedback model there cause I, it's not a real company that we've built around it. So, right. uh, um, but here's what I would do if I wanted to improve that product. Uh, and it's, it's things we do within my current company, uh, jet insight, uh, quite often. So one of the, one of the. Top level ones is uh, a company can do something called uh, NPS surveys, uh, and that's ge generally just measuring on a on a one to ten scale how happy the user is with the product. Right? You've all you've probably seen this. What's on that a net, website net promoter score? Is that is that what it stands exactly? For? Yeah, net net promoter score. I can never remember it, so I just use the. The, the TLM, the three-letter acronym. I'll be honest, I'm, I'm, I'm actually rather impressed that I remembered it. So I, I think that one in a thousand shot that I was going to get it and I got it, but it, it wouldn't. I'm, it, it I'm wouldn't really impressed. <laughs> I'm really impressed. So the, the really insidious thing about, about the net promoter is it's really hard to score on this thing. So I'll see if I get this right. Uh, I might be slightly wrong, but... Basically, if you answer on a one to ten scale between one and five, then you are a net detractor for the product. That means you don't like the product. So if you just give it a product of five, which is a mediocre score, that means you don't like it. Right. Uh, and if you score between uh, six and seven, or maybe it's six and eight, I don't remember exactly, uh, then it, this means you're neutral about the product. Mm -hmm. And you're only a net promoter of the product if you give it a nine to 10. Right? Really? So uh, maybe it's an eight, nine or 10. I don't remember the exact scoring here, but it's, it's, it's hard to get uh, a high score on this, on this uh, scale. Uh, and the way you calculate your NPS score for a, uh, for a product is you take this, the total number of responses you get and you add one for everyone who's a promoter. So all your nines and tens, you subtract one for all your detractors so your fives through ones, and uh, and you add zero <laughs> for for all your neutrals, uh, and you you get to a and then you divide by the number of responses, and most almost all products end up negative. Really, <laughs> <laughs> is the reality of it? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's really hard to get a good score. It is deflating, yeah. So you can imagine your cable company has a really, really high, uh, low NPS score, almost, yeah, almost one hundred percent negative. Uh, uh, most most cable companies. I'm sure you, you have the best cable company, but <laughs> who me? <laughs> mine mine scores very low. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't watch. I don't. I actually don't watch TV. But uh, good, which, good for you. Good for you. It's such a weird thing to say, but I just I don't know. I just I don't. But uh, but I have a feeling that if I did, my net promoter score would be it'd be pretty low. <laughs> It's like airlines uh, too, right? I'm sure that they have pretty low low net promoter scores. So we learned a couple of things about 
uh, about a product from a from an NPS score is you know, it's very humbling for one is mm-hmm. to see people give you give you a zero, right? Especially, um, and if you do this right, you'll also be asking questions like here. Tell us why. Uh, and it's a really good idea to follow up with all the folks, who, especially who answer in the in the three or less, mm-hmm. as much as you can. So to to uh, send them an email or otherwise contact them and try to figure out what they specifically don't like about the product, because oftentimes you it it's for one specific thing that the product did wrong that you didn't even know was important to the user, right? Uh, like. Um, we had an issue with one of our apps where it, it was just syncing too frequently, Mm -hmm. right? Which we thought was a good thing, right? You want your up, your, your data to be up to date. Uh, and it annoyed our users. It annoyed a few users in in particular so much that they thought we had the worst product ever. They literally thought we had the worst product ever. (laughs) Um, and it was, you know, a super easy thing to fix, once we knew about it, but we just didn't know about it. And when it was, in fact, a feature that we thought was a positive feature. Right, right, right. Uh, and there are lots of examples like that where we make a product decision that we think is for the benefit. Because from our perspective, from the designer's perspective, we have this understanding of the product, a highly technical point of view, and we make assumptions about what the, how the user is going to use it. But in the real world, people use things in a very different ways than we imagine, which is delightful, actually. That's, the, that's a wonderful thing. If your product can be used for many different things in ways that you can't even imagine, you've got a good product. Mm-hmm. Uh, the difficulty is to then get all that feedback from users and adjust the product so that they can be happier with it. The other side of the NPS score is uh, people who give you tens are really likely to tell their friends about your product and say nice things about you. And those are the, that's free marketing. It's mm-hmm. in, in fact, um, most companies in, in that I've been part of and most companies in, in, uh, in technology spaces, they can't, they can't survive without having that MPS positive score rating when they're young. Right. A, a startup can't afford to spend a lot on marketing. Mm-hmm. What we what we should be doing is we make sure our product is really really great for a subset of users. So great that those subset of users that you make incredibly happy go out and tell the world about it. Well, that it, that uh, especially I know in my business, like with podcasts, that most people find out about podcasts from their friends. And same yeah. way that restaurants and things like that, like I grew up in the restaurant business and restaurants are the same way that most people go out to restaurants, not because of advertising, but their friend told them that they had a great meal there. And, but it's the same thing with any, I, I would much, I would much more, or, or I would much more value a recommendation from you than I would seeing an Instagram ad or something. So. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so talk to me about, about how you how you feel about your sort of your circle your circle of influence like we've all heard the saying that you're the average of the five people that you that you spend the most amount of time with but through your career you've been you being one of them but you've also been around a lot of very intelligent people who you know I'm sure have cra- or have shaped your career how important do you think that is and how hard do you think it is to thrive in in an environment or inside of a circle that is not that is not a, a positive impact on you. 
Yeah, I think it's it is really really a interesting quandary. Uh, so uh, I think free will is an illusion. Well, <laughs> we could get into a long <laughs> philosophical discussion about that. Um, but the 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 net of that is that we our our future behavior is entirely predicated on what we've learned in the past and we learn from those around us mm-hmm. like uh, there's there's been been some really interesting recent sociological and childhood development studies recently that show that uh, that a child's peer group is actually more important than their parents are in terms of how what they're going to learn and how successful they're going to be uh, which is shocking right we, mm-hmm. we would think the parents are going to have much more influence on the child's behavior but uh, it turns out there's a lot more peers around kids than there are parents. So uh, they have a, an outsized influence. And I, I'm sure that the, those around me influence my behavior because they're, the, they're who I'm learning from. Sometimes mm-hmm. I'm learning what not to do sure. from, from people around me. And hopefully I learn those lessons the right way. But I'm also learning what to do. I credit uh, some of my some of my closest friends with giving me the interpersonal skills to even have a conversation like this. Cause I wasn't always, um, I wasn't always the best conversationalist <laughs> to say, to, to put it mildly. Um, it, the, the ability though, for us to, to just change that is, is not really easy, right? It's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, maybe it's relatively easy to say, okay, if we know that, if we or if we know or suspect that a, somebody in our life is having a really negative um, effect on us, then maybe we should just really attempt to not be around them. Uh, but that's not always possible for everyone. Uh, I would say that you know if you can't be away from that group, uh, then just try to tilt your perspective and try to filter it through how you want to be, mm-hmm. right? how how you perceive yourself and how you want your your future self to be and you can pay attention again to the things you don't want to be and use those as as examples and you can also be a really great positive influence on on even the people around you who aren't positive influences to 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 you you can use it as a as a as a way of practicing being the type of person that you want to be Mm -hmm. and uh, furthermore i think we it's not Terribly common, but I think we oftentimes find little moments in our life where we are not well known to the to, to whatever group we're going into. So we go to a we go to a party, we go to a uh, we go to an event, or we uh, uh, we go to something where nobody knows us. This is a great opportunity to just try being somebody different than who you are today, if that's who you want to be. Really think about. I want to be this person. What are the characteristics of that person? I'm just going to, I'm not going to, you know, try to be fake. Right. But I'm going to try to exude all of the characteristics that I believe are who I want to be and test those out. See what the response is uh, from those around you and just try to don't bring up the past. Um, uh, I, I, I enjoy that process Um, when I, so I, I play music as a hobby, uh, and almost all of me, the musicians that I play with have no idea that I have any, do anything in technology. They just know me as a musician. Really? Uh, 
Yeah. I, and it's, that's how I really want it to be. I'd mm. much rather, because that's when I'm playing music, that's like, really wish I was a better musician. <laughs> I, I want to be a musician. That's, right. I, 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 I love that. And if people will accept me purely on the basis of my musical skill and my ability to interact musically, then that's a great joy to me. And that's, so that's what I'm doing there when I want to be that, that person. Mm -hmm. try, not, try not to bring that technology side of me in. I know it certainly, it is who, that it is part of me wherever I go. And I've learned much from it, but I can be this other person. I can be the musician or I could be, I could be the hockey player or the skier that I am. Right. And I try not to, I, I never talk about, I try not to ever talk about work or other things when I'm in those environments. I try to be entirely uh, within the moment when mm -hmm. I'm doing these other things. <laughs> Don't you ever just think like when someone does something though, you're like, yeah, I invented that. And then just kind of move on. <laughs> not, not once, no. ever? Right. Well, it has happened, but I, I try to think of that as there, there was a previous version of me. It was very different. And I, that, that person is never coming back. And uh, you know, if, if, I, if I live in the past, then I'm mm -hmm. not, I can never be as good a person as I want to be right. in the future. So. Right. Um, it's kind of like, what have you done for me lately? Yeah. Uh, you really have to think that way. Is, uh, is it, it doesn't matter what we've done in the past. And that's both from a positive and a negative perspective. So if you have things in your past that you're ashamed of, you can leave those behind mm -hmm. the same way that I need to leave behind. Um, you know, I had positive accomplishments in the past that I'm quite proud of. But if I try to live on that, right. it's a, not, not a good feeling. It's not good to feel... All my best years are behind me. Of course. For one, that's, yeah. how I, that's one of the reasons I think that way. And also, I don't think I'd be a very good person if I, you know, if I was trying to live on those laurels. Where you were saying before that, I guess some of that like crept in where was there like, was there arrogance that, that you carried with you because of that or? Uh, yeah, I, 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 I've had bad moments in my life for sure. Well, I think <laughs> Hopefully they're, uh, they're fewer and fewer. Um, but we learn those painful lessons and I, I think it's back to those, uh, back to the question of how we surround ourselves with, with, um, influences. I think it's really important to, to be with people who can be really honest mm -hmm. with, with us, who can give you that hard feedback when, when we don't act up to our, uh, expectations or their expectations and, and, and feel uh, if they feel they can communicate with us uh, when we're behaving badly and give us that feedback, that's that's a that's a good relationship, and mm -hmm. we we should strive to find more and more of those relationships. Because back to the feedback loops, the more feedback that we have to correct our behavior and to push it in the direction we want it to be, mm -hmm. the better we'll be as humans. Right. So I try to tell my friends my goals and they're not goals like, oh, I want my company to be successful or I want, I want to make a million dollars or whatever it is. I try to tell them goals like, well, I am trying to be better in this way uh, as a human. Mm -hmm. right? So I want, to be, I want to be kinder. I want to be more positive. I want to laugh more. I want to, I want to be the guy who has interesting discussion topics uh, right. when we're playing poker. So help me out here. And mm -hmm. uh, I'm trying to have a better sense of humor. So tell me when my jokes are terrible. <laughs> uh, those sorts of things. You know, just, just give me that feedback. If you ask people 
to give you feedback on those things and you continue to ask because they won't believe you the first time. Right. If you continue to ask them over and over again to give you this hard critical feedback, they will start to do that and you could start to learn and and build. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what I've been trying to do. Uh, and I hope I'm getting better. <laughs> well, I, I know that just experiences that, that I've had, you know, the limited experiences you and I have had together, uh, well, I mean, you've always been extremely kind and generous with your time. And, and, but I, one of the things that really stuck out to me was when we had dinner, uh, up in, up at Yoshi's and we were talking cause my wife and I were living in Northern California and we were saying, yeah, we're, we, we, we don't, we like Northern California. We don't particularly like where we live. We think LA would be a better place for us. And you looked right, you were, you looked right at me and just said, well, you should move. And I was like, well, no, because, and you said, there's, you said, there's no, there's no point in living in a place that, that you're not enjoying. And if it were up to me, I would move tomorrow. And, and the way that you said it wasn't, it was, it wasn't condescending in it by any means. It was more of like once in a while, I think that we need that reminder that you can do anything that you want to do. You just you just have to make the decision to do it and 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 go do that. And I know that there's things that I put out there in the world and people kind of look at me like, what world do you live in? And I'm like, well, I want to live in a world where where I can, you know, I can dream up big ideas and then I can go after them. And so going back to the peer group, um, it's amazing how one little conversation, you know, that that we had at dinner stuck with and now here we are. Like we live in in LA and uh it's just one, I want to thank you for it. But two, it's just amazing that if you get around the right people, because it would be easy for someone like you or anyone to at dinner and say, yeah, 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 don't, that's hard, man. You should just stay where you're at. You're lucky you live where you're at. You should just stay there, you know, <laughs> which a lot of people do. Well, congratulations on the move. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that it's working out for you and that uh, it's brought happiness. It has. It has. How do you suggest that people upgrade their, their, peer group or the people that they're spending time with? Is it, is it just maybe going to events or is it, you know, it's a, it's a tough thing. Yeah. I, as I mentioned, I have not always been the most social or outgoing person. Um, I, it, it shifted for me as I, I, at a certain part of my life, I was super repressed. And once I started to experience, um, what it's like to actually be a social human. I started to just say yes to everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, I think for most people, I, I, I can't really speak for, you know, for everyone, but at least in my experience, we get a lot of opportunities thrown at us and we usually just never even consider them mm-hmm. because they seem inconvenient or it wasn't, didn't seem fun at the time or whatever. Um, uh, if we just start saying yes to a lot of stuff, we'll, we'll start to discover things uh, about ourselves that we didn't know. Like we might have actually enjoy going to a community play. Mm-hmm. I did. I didn't. I didn't. But uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> not me, but someone uh, else. <laughs> yeah, not me. Um, uh, but we we uh, can find enjoyment in things that didn't sound like fun. And uh, we'll start hanging out with different people as we take on these opportunities. And again, it does require some force of will to change our habitual behaviors that are ingrained in our personality. Mm-hmm. Like if, if we're just wanting to be nicer people, 
So this was something I have been and, uh, and, and have worked on for a number of years. I just realized at some point that I wanted to be more positive and nicer to everyone around me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's not, it's no really clear path to that, except telling everybody around me that I am trying to do this. Remind me when I'm not doing this and, and, and I'm going to really try at it. So the reason I mention this is if you don't change uh, some of your habits and you're trying to hang out with different people, you're probably just going to get back into the same old rut. So right. you, if it, it needs to be combined with this force of will to, I want to be, I want to be a slightly different person than I am in whatever direction you want to be. Mm-hmm. And then also looking to be with people who share those similarities or who are willing to give you the unvarnished truth and the feedback that you need in order to get to your goals. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, All right. I have a couple quick rapid fire questions and, and that way I'll let you, I'll let you go. I don't want to take too much of your time. Um, So one, we have to talk about cookies briefly. So I understand that cookies serve the purpose of remembering you when you come to a website, right? So that way, is that so it doesn't have to load all of the stuff uh, onto the website again? Is it to speed up the website experience or is it just to remember just to remember what you've done? Yeah, so these are the annoying kind of cookies and not the chocolate chip variety. <laughs> um, so prior to cookies, the, the web server it couldn't identify at all who you were if you returned to the website. So... If you're, uh, we'll take a shopping cart analogy as as uh, as an example because it's one of the reasons, one of the primary reasons is it, it cookies exist. So let's say you go to uh, a website and you say, "I want to buy a toaster." You're you're looking at a toaster for sale on a website and you click, "I want to buy that toaster." Mm-hmm. In the early days of the web, you would click on that link and the website because you're basically going to a new page to to go to the the cart, the website wouldn't know who you are when you came back to the cart. So it wouldn't know that you wanted to buy a toaster. Uh, <laughs> there was, yeah, there was only one mechanism that could be used, which was to use a username and password mechanism, which was you know, built into the core protocol of the web. Right. And it was, it was very primitive. Got you. So cookies allow the uh, website uh, when you return to remember why you were there. Got you. So it's used both as a login me- mechanism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a session for I've logged in and each time I return to that website, uh, it, it knows that I'm logged in. Right. Uh, and as a pre-login mechanism. So, you know, before I create an account on a website, I can, I can interact with it and can remember little things about me. Like I wanted to buy a toaster and then you get to the shopping cart and, and then create an account. Right. Do you have an issue with cookies now though? Yeah, so a lot of uh, there's, there's a lot of misunderstood parts of cookies, and there's also uh, you know, the reality that cookies are are used as as part of the technology stack that advertisers use to uh, advertise to you and to track what it is you like that uh, that you should be advertised for. Right, <laughs> and and one of its one of its creepiest forms is. You go to a website at some point and you look at, you know, you know, 
little little rubber duckies or something. And then for the next month, you see nothing but advertisements for little rubber duckies. Yeah. And you're like, ah, oh, damn, damn <laughs> those websites. And it's, it is cookies somewhere in there that is causing part of that. It's not the only technology, but it's, it's certainly the most memorable one. Right. And if you clear your cookies, it'll go away because, you know, that's the mechanism in which it uses to remember you. Mm-hmm. Um, so the reality is, is there's, there's other ways that the advertising industry could use besides cookies. Uh, there is good reason why cookies are used and should still be used uh, on the web. Uh, one of them is that cookies have uh, their, there's a, a bunch of controls that you can use today to limit their use. Uh, so you can, you can, you can use tools or built-in settings within the web browser to limit what, how the cookie could be used. And if we were to stop using cookies for advertisements or get rid of cookies completely, then advertisements would just move to another mechanism that is beyond your control. Right. And so this is a little bit of the devil, you know, argument, Mm -hmm. um, there it's better if you're going to be advertised to. It's better to have them through a mechanism that you know than a mechanism that you don't. Sure. Um, it, it is certainly legitimate to complain about the way people are advertising to you. Uh, but cookies are really just a tech, technological piece of that puzzle. And they're not really what you're angry about if you're <laughs> angry about it. Right. Right. <laughs> now that makes sense. Um, yeah. So if we want to change that as a society, we're probably going to need to have legislative changes um, this is why you see uh, GDPR and the European Union uh, having regulations around how cookies are used and uh, regulations about how um, personalized advertising is mm-hmm. used. And that's that's probably the right direction. Um, I personally would like to see the web shift away from a pure advertising model. I think that the the uh, free through advertising model has caused. Uh, a lot of very negative behavioral traits to be put into products. Mm -hmm. Uh, So social media is uh, the use of advertising in social media is is one of the prime examples is that social media makes all its money based on how many page views you have and how long you stay on the site. So the longer you're on site, more advertising you see. Um, If we got rid of advertising completely on social media, then there would no longer be a incentive for the for the social media companies to keep you in this never-ending uh pit of of constant excitement to keep coming back to this to their website right and they could just give you useful features <laughs> ones that don't necessarily make you feel angst and rage and out and outrage which are the feelings they're using today to get you to keep coming back um, so if we could find a different model to pay for these things that we could have much better uh, user behaviors or product behaviors that will drive um, hopefully better user happiness. Because I, I see that this constant um, bombardment that we're having from advertising and, and, and social media inspired page clicks is causing people to both waste a lot of time and also to develop some very uh, un, uh, unhappy uh, habits, mm-hmm. right? to compare ourselves constantly to everybody on the internet who is merely comparing themselves to everybody on the internet and trying to look like they're having fun is not a very good model in my, in my mind. I agree. Uh, it doesn't seem very healthy. So lots of people have talked about this is not nothing new, but, but do uh, you have, do you have ideas of, of ways that c- it could be monetized without the advertising? 
it's going to be really hard transition because it's hard to get people to pay for subscription revenue right now. But that's that's the only one that I know of today. Right. Um, I think if we want to have change, we'll have to have some sort of fairly radical or you know fairly um, difficult transition period. Like if you, for instance, said, uh, here's, a, here's just a straw man. If you said there'll never be any more, uh, it's illegal to have online advertising, it would drastically change the internet. And it might be for the better. Yeah. We know one thing we know for sure. It would change the internet. For sure, uh, it would have a lot of bad effects, uh, but the, maybe the good effects outweigh the, the bad effects. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that's the answer, but we could use it as a thought exercise to think about what are all the things that might change and how we could redesign our products to not use advertising as its core revenue basis. Right. It's an interesting. It's an interesting situation too, because I I'm not really on social media that much. And, but I love the internet. So I use the internet for everything. I do research. I communicate with people. I run my business online. Like there's, you know, I use it for all of these things, but there's a lot of downside to it. Like you said, the the comparison and social media and, and, and feeling, and they've already, they've already figured out that, you know, the dopamine response is similar to drugs. There's, there's a depression that is linked to using too much social media. It's a time waster. There's all these other elements of it where, you know, I don't know. I, you can't necessarily have all the good without some of the bad, right? But how do we make it a lot more better than than worse uh, for everyone in society? So I don't know. It's an interesting question for sure. Yeah, I was I was at drum camp I think about two years ago, and we were having a discussion like like this uh, around the fire pit and just talking about you know, some of the positives and negatives. And somebody made a radical. What I thought was like just a really interesting radical um, observation. And they said, "Oh well, I just removed it from my phone, and now it's much better. <laughs> like <laughs> I can still get to it if I'm at, in front of a computer, yeah. but I'm very rarely in front of a computer, so that it's much better." And so that's what I did: is I removed um, all the social media tools from my phone. Me too. And it just radically transformed the way I use social media. So I no longer have the urge to look at it every five minutes because I just can't. Mm-hmm. And if I want to check in occasionally, I can. And but when I check in, it's much less that that um, that instinctual, habitual reaction to check it all the time because uh, you know all these things are happening is no longer there, and it's just more of like an interesting. Oh, okay, that's that's what Joe's up to. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Yep. <laughs> the only tedious part much- is with Instagram when I want to post stuff. Uh, you can't do it from the web. So I have to download the app, post the picture, and then I delete the app. Pretty yeah, tedious. Yeah. But, uh, but it works. It works. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so I, there's, you don't do, you don't do a lot of, uh, a lot of speaking. You don't have a book. You're not here to plug anything. Uh, but if people want to follow along and, and kind of keep an eye on, on things that you have going on, where's the best place to go to your website? Um, you can go to my website, but there's nothing really there. I just have, you know, I, I don't really care. Um, you know, I'll t- go to fishcam.com. Yeah. I, uh, it's the it's one of the oldest websites in the world. <laughs> it's been around since 1994, uh, and it's the oldest live streaming camera on the Internet. And it just looks at my fish tank. Did you it's guys invent the webcam? No, no. Um, somebody else invented the webcam. They put a a uh, camera on a coffee pot in England 
And every minute it would take a picture of that coffee pot. It would just basically tell them if the coffee was full or not. But it was a public camera. So that was the very first one. And that inspired me to create the fish can because I wanted something a little bit more interesting than a coffee pot. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. So fishcam.com. Fishcam.com, yeah. I love it. I love it. Lou, uh, thank you for for taking the time to chat with me. Thanks for taking, you know, actually getting this lined up. I appreciate it. I know you're a busy guy, but but also for the for the insights, not only today, but but through the years of our of our friendship. I always appreciate you willing to chat with me and and entertain my ridiculous ideas and answer my my uh my foolish questions so i i appreciate it and i appreciate everything that you do anytime nick and if there's anything i can do to help you in your business uh, just let me know i appreciate it thank you i'll talk to you soon thank you There you have it, the one and only Lou Montulli. Thank you so much for checking out this podcast. If you enjoy it, do me a favor, go to iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and make sure that you subscribe. And you can also leave a rating and review that lets people know that this podcast is a great one to be listening to. And if you think that one of your friends would like this episode or any other episode, please share it out. That's the way that we let other people know about this podcast is by sharing it with their friends. You can share it on social or anywhere you'd like. Speaking of social, I'm on all the platforms at the Nick Ruffini. And that's a wrap.